Father in heaven, we thank you so much tonight for the opportunity of opening your word. We pray that the spirit that inspired the word would inspire our hearts, lift our vision from what is to what can be, open our eyes from seeing what's around us to see what's above us, help us to see every patient as a child of God, created in the very image of God that Jesus wants restored back to his image. As we open your word tonight, grant us a sense of your divine presence. May we know that we've been with you and you've been with us. In Christ's name, amen. Sickness is really debilitating, not only to the body, but to the mind. Have you ever been sick for a week and you've run a high fever? You've maybe had the flu for a week and you kind of feel, feel really wiped out after the week. What about being sick for two weeks? Or what about being sick for three weeks? What if you had a lingering illness that kept you debilitated for a year? What if your illness sapped your strength and, and took away your energy for two or three years? What if you were sick for 12 years? You can identify with a woman in Mark, the fifth chapter. Mark's account and Luke's account of this story, the woman with the issue of blood, are somewhat different. Mark is much harder on physicians than is Luke. And I wondered about that a little bit because I wondered if Luke had a little more charity being a physician himself. But if you compare the story in Mark's gospel and the story in Luke's gospel, Mark is much harder on the physicians than is Luke. We're turning in our Bible here to Mark, the fifth chapter, and we're beginning with the 25th verse. Now, it's Mark chapter 5, verse 25. Now, a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years. She was hemorrhaging continually. Her clothes were stained with a continual crimson stream of blood. She was tired. She was worn out. She was weak. She was emaciated. But worst of all, she could no longer experience the hugs of her husband. She had to cry unclean, unclean every place that she went. She was discouraged. She was depressed. She lived in utter desperation. Her children could no longer jump up on her lap. She was an outcast. She wandered the dusty streets of Jerusalem. She wandered through the countryside, every place she went, because when a woman had continual excessive hemorrhaging, she was considered to be unclean. Can you imagine this woman? See her in your mind. Her hair is disheveled, windblown, out of place. Her eyes are deeply sunk in her head. She has a look of discouragement on her face. The garment that she's wearing is blood-stained and it's dirty. Her head is down. People point at her in mockery. She goes to physician after physician. Now Mark's Gospel puts it this way. This woman longs to be well. She longs for healing. She searches for a cure but nothing seems to work. 
In Mark chapter 5, we look there, and Mark is quite gentle on the physicians. He says she suffered many things from many physicians. She spends all she has, but she wasn't any better. But then he says she grew worse. So Mark's gospel says, he's a little gentle, but then he comes right to the point. Now Luke is much more diplomatic. He doesn't want to offend the medical community. Now Mark says this. He says she suffers many things from many physicians. Uh, Luke doesn't say that. doesn't say the physicians made her suffer. Luke basically says she didn't get any better. Uh, Mark says she spends all her money, but she's no better. And then Mark adds these words. She got worse. Let's go now to Luke's account. You take your Bible and go to Luke the 8th chapter. I want you to picture the woman, tired, emaciated, worn out, continued flow of blood. Luke chapter 8. She is weak. She spends all her money. She has nothing left. She spends her hard-earned savings for these quack cures. Now she's not only desperate, but she's hopeless. She's not only discouraged, but she's in total despair. Darkness fills her soul. She spent her money and she is worse off. The Bible says in Luke, the 8th chapter, the 43rd verse, Now a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years, spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed of any. Notice Luke's pretty diplomatic. He doesn't say she got worse, and he doesn't say that that, uh, she suffered many things by the hands of the physician. He only says she could not be healed by any. Now this story is a remarkable story on what genuine healing is all about. And in the story, there are three Greek words used for healing. And those words are extremely significant because they take you from conventional healing to the healing ministry of Christ. When you look at verse 43, it says she spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any. Now, if you have a little pen, you may want to circle the word healing. The word there in the Greek is therapuo. And what it's literally translated, and you know the word we get from therapuo, it's therapy. And so essentially the text is saying she's spending all her money, but there was no therapy for her. She basically is saying, Doc, I don't know what it's going to take. I've used all these quack cures. I've tried everything possible. But, Doc, whatever therapy you have, whatever medicine you can give me, whatever cure, all I want is a cure. So the patient focuses on the cure. Now the story goes on. She comes behind Christ. She sees Jesus. She knows that he has performed miraculous healings. And with the concentrated faith of her life, she reaches out to touch him. And through that crowd, she touches the hem of his garment. She has active, living faith. She believes that the living Christ can transform her life. She believes that the living Christ can change her. She believes that there's healing in the living Christ. And Jesus honors that faith. And immediately she senses that there's new life flowing in her body. And Jesus, verse 45, Jesus said, who touched me? 
When all denied it, Peter said, look, you're being thronged in the crowd. Masters, multitudes are pressing you. What do you say who touched me? Jesus always can pick out from the crowd the touch of faith in the casual touch. When you and I kneel and pray, not casually, not carelessly, not flippantly, not superficially, but when we are on our knees crying out to God in the touch of living faith, Jesus always hears, Jesus always listens, and Jesus always moves with that miracle. Jesus says, verse 46, Jesus said, somebody touched me, for I perceived power going out of me, verse 47. Now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, and she declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she touched him and how she was healed immediately. Now you see, there's the second word for healed. Luke is very precise as a physician. Physicians know that words matter. Physicians know that their charts make a difference. This is the chart of Luke, the physician. And he uses a different word for healing here. In the Greek, he uses iameo. And iameo focuses not on the therapy, but it focuses on the removal of the disease. So the patient is interested in the cure. The patient says, what I want is one thing. I don't care what it takes. Give me some pill, doc. Give me some medication, doc. Whatever it takes, cure me. The physician is interested in the diagnosis of disease and interested in the removal of that disease. And so the physician may have varying therapies. You then come to the essence of the gospel in verse 48. And he said to her, daughter, Jesus didn't see her as a nameless face on the chart. Jesus did not see her as one more patient to treat in a busy day of treatment. Jesus said, daughter, daughter. He respected her dignity. He saw her as a human being created in the image of God. He did not see a disheveled, disparated, despairing, discouraged, downhearted woman. He saw her created in the image of God. And he says to her, not you there, not that one. He says, daughter, no nameless face on a chart. A human being that needs the loving touch. A human being that needs hope and encouragement. Daughter, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. The ministry of Christ is to lift the spirit, to encourage the heart, to bring hope to the hopeless, to bring joy to the sorrowing, to bring healing to the sick. Be of good cheer. Your faith, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now the word well can also be translated whole or it has healed you, but it's a total different word. The word well there is the familiar word zozo, 
Zozo is used 110 times in the New Testament, and 90 of those times it is used for salvation. It's a very large word in the Greek. It's a word for wholeness. It's a word for completeness. It's a word for the totality of healing that has to do with, with physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual healing. So when Jesus viewed human beings, he saw them as indivisible units. They were physical, mental, they were emotional, and they were spiritual. The patient looks for a cure, any cure. The traditional non-Christian physician looks for some kind of relief for the disease and anything they'll deal with the disease. But the gospel medical missionary medical practitioner looks for something more. They long to see the patient whole. They long to see that patient renewed in the image of God because sin divides human beings. It separates them from the source of health and the source of healing. The devil is the great destroyer and Jesus is the great restorer. And here we see in the method of Jesus' healing this emphasis on wholeness. The Bible says in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and destroy. But Jesus says, I've come that they might have what? Life and have it more abundantly. Our role as medical practitioners is to help people have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus wants to restore health. The devil wants to destroy health. Now, in the book, Medical Ministry, page 20, Ellen White makes this remarkable statement. Christ stands before us as the pattern man, the great medical missionary, an example for all who should come after. We are to do the same work that the great medical missionary undertook in our behalf. The essence of Christ's life, which is the essence of the gospel, is the pouring out of self-sacrificing, sacrificial love, not for your own good, but for the good of others. Every time somebody walks into your office, every time you visit by the bedside at the hospital, you have an opportunity for the self-sacrificing love of God to flow through your very life, for the healing powers of Christ to flow through the very life that you live, to touch that patient in ways that a non-Christian patient could not touch them. The reason the New Testament church grew so rapidly, and tonight I'm going to take a look very briefly at six major epics in history and show that when there are mighty revivals in history, it was because the self-sacrificing love of Christ ministered to the total being, physical, mental, spiritual, and emotional. When you look at the ministry of Christ, thousands followed him, not merely because he charmed them with his sermons, which he did, not merely because he preached 
magnificent theological truths, which he did, not merely because of the Sermon on the Mount and the parables. Those were magnificent treaties of divine, inspired, godly wisdom. But Jesus drew crowds to him because nobody had ever seen before such a manifestation of the love of God. And as the result of that, Jesus touched the eyes of the blind and they were open, touched the ears of the deaf and they were unstopped, touched the withered man's arm and it was healed. And when people saw that and they sensed the healing power of God, they jumped and followed him by the masses. Now after Christ died and was resurrected and ascended to heaven, he commissioned his disciples to do the same work. And so we come now to the book of Acts. And we'll look at two experiences in Acts in the second phase of our journey. The first phase of our journey is the ministry of Christ, a ministry of self-sacrificing, unselfish love. The second phase of our journey is the ministry of the disciples after he left. The first story we look at is Acts, the third chapter. A first look at Acts chapter 3 misses the major point. I taught a class a summer ago on the book of Acts for, Andrew, for Southern Adventist University. We have a master's degree program at our school at the Living Hope that we are affiliated with Southern Adventist University. And uh, we teach, uh, it's a 36-hour master's program in religion, health, and, and uh, evangelism, actually. We teach medical missionary evangelism. They can, students can take nine hours of academic credit at our institution in 27 hours uh, over a summer period. They don't have to go full-time. They go in the summers at Southern. But I was teaching a course in the Book of Acts, and I told my students, I said to them, first day of class, now there are only going to be two questions on the final exam. And all my students began to clap. And I said, but I didn't tell you what the questions were yet. Question number one. What is in every chapter of the book of Acts? Now, you don't have to memorize it, but it would be helpful if you did. I want to know what's in every chapter of the book of Acts. I want to know how the chapter begins, chapter in the middle. So you need to basically memorize Acts. Secondly, <laughs> secondly I want you, after you have told me what's in that chapter, I want, to, I want you to answer this question about every chapter. How does this apply to your practical life and how does this apply to your ministry? One of my students was a CPA and he said, man, my CPA exam was four hours but it wasn't as hard as this exam. <laughs> when I was teaching, the Lord began to impress me about some things in Acts chapter 3. Now, there are two great stories in Acts that I want you to take a look at just briefly with me for a moment. When the church grew in Acts... In Acts chapter 1, you have 120 believers that meet in the upper room. There's about 60 million people in the Roman Empire at the time. Some, Josephus will give us higher numbers, but they're much too high. So it's about 60 million people. If you look at the ratio of 120 to 60 million, it's 1 to 500,000. So it's about one Christian for every 500,000 people in the Roman Empire. Now, there may have been more... Christians than the 120 in the upper room, but I use that as a comparison figure. By the time you come to the end, 30 years later, from the beginning of the book of Acts to the end, by the time you come to the end, there's at least a million Christians. Most uh, social demographers tell us there are at least a million Christians by the time you come to the end of the book of Acts. 
So now, rather than 1 to 500,000, if you've got 60 million, it's 1 to 60. I mean, that's amazing. You've got one Seventh-day Adventist in the world today to about every 280 people. But when the New Testament church started, it was 1 to 500,000, and the conditions they faced were much more challenging than the ones we faced. Most of the time, we believe that the church grew rapidly because of prayer in the book of Acts, you find that, because of preaching in the book of Acts, because of witnessing, all that is true, but it's not, that's not the only truth. The church grew rapidly in the book of Acts because there was medical missionary working being done. And I can show you that all through the book. There's caring for the poor. There's reaching out in self-sacrificial service. Now we go to Acts chapter 3. We're going to look at two stories in Acts. Acts chapter 3. Peter and John are coming into the temple. And there's a man sitting there who has been lame from birth, according to Acts chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. He is sitting there. And as they are walking into the temple for worship, this man looks up and asks them for some money. Now here is the key point to remember in the story. He asks them for money, but they have something much more to give him than what he asked. People come into your office and they need healing, but you have something much more to give them than they ask. That's the point here. So he's asking for a few pennies. They have something much more to give him. He's going to be surprised with what they have to offer. So here, he says, he begs for alms. And verse 4, and fixing his eyes on him, John and Peter said, look at us. And so he gave them his attention, expecting to receive from, something from them. He expects one thing, but they give him something else. Patients come into your office. All they're expecting is healing. And that woman is going through the trauma of a divorce and she can't sleep at night. And she's got stomach pain. And she comes to get a pill to help to calm her nerves. And at the end you say, is there something traumatic going on in your life that I might pray for? And she breaks down and begins crying in your office. And you pray with her. And the Spirit of God gives her peace. And she walks out of that office with much more than a bottle of pills. She walks out with the peace of Christ living in her heart because you've helped her to take the first step on a journey. Here, this man expected a few pennies. And Peter says, what every preacher says, silver and gold have I none. But what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk. Now the next verse is amazing. She could not do it by herself. He could not do it by himself. That woman that you prayed for could not do it by herself. This man cannot get up by himself. He doesn't have the strength in his legs. He doesn't have the strength in his muscles. He's been lame from birth. And notice what the Bible says. He took him by the right hand and he lifted him up and immediately feet and ankle bones received their strength. There are times that people come to your office, they're broken, they're bruised, they're crushed, they have little or no faith. And you take them by the hand and through the strength that Christ has given you, you lift them to their feet and they rejoice and walk again. Now notice what happens. Two points so far. The man comes. 
to the temple for one thing. He has no idea that that day is going to change his whole life. He comes for one thing and he gets another. But he needs the assistance of Peter and John to stand to his feet. And then the scripture says, this man is whole. Verse 8, so leaping up, he stood and walked and entered into the temple with them. The Bible says he's praising God. People walk through the door of your office seeking one thing. Gently, kindly, lovingly, compassionately, you lead them to Jesus. And you give them much more than they dream for, but their faith is weak, and you help them stand on their feet. And eventually they praise God and on Sabbath walk into the church with you. In Acts chapter 3, we see that the miracle-working power of the living Christ impacted crowds so they came to Christ. Now, in Acts the 16th chapter, you have another story. In Acts the 16th chapter, Paul has doors shut in his face. And as he does, he comes to Troas... And Luke is there, a godly physician. Paul is establishing a medical missionary team. And there, as he's establishing that medical missionary team, he has Silas, he has, he has another group of disciples with him, some unnamed, and there Luke joins them. In Acts 16, they go to Philippi. And there in Philippi, they meet Lydia, out by the riverside. There was no Jewish synagogue in Philippi. Philippi was a Roman retirement center of about 15,000 people at the end of the Ignatian Way. It was a wealthy city because they had discovered gold in the Pagonian Hills. And there, Paul begins to minister, and Lydia is baptized. He ministers further, and a young lady who's a slave girl possessed by demons is delivered. He ministers further, and he gets himself put in prison, and the Philippian jailer is converted when the prison falls down and Paul ministers and Silas to their home. At that point, the whole city is in an uproar, and Paul knows that he has to leave the city. Now, when he leaves the city, there's a little small fledgling church. It's probably 30 or 40 people at most. There's Lydia and her household. There's the little slave girl. And there is the Roman jailer. Now, that's fascinating in itself because the first church in Europe is a multi-ethnic church. You've got Lydia, who's a Jew. You've got the Roman, and she's very wealthy, by the way, upper class. You got the Roman who is middle class, and you got the slave girl who's largely from Africa. So you have a multi ethnic, multi generational church that starts, but Paul leaves. Now, Acts 16 does not tell you the rest of the story. You can read that in the book Acts of the Apostles, or you can read it in Ministry of Healing, page 141. And here's what Ellen White says, which is fascinating. She said, Paul left, but he left Luke, the physician in the city, and these are her words, 
for many years. So Paul leaves. Luke stays there with a medical missionary team. And Ellen White goes on to say that he visited people house to house, that he gave them medical treatments, that he used natural remedies to work with them, that he did the best he could with the medical knowledge of the day. And she says he was a physician and a teacher in that city, and the church at Philippi grew to be one of the strongest New Testament Christian churches. Why did the church grow so rapidly in the book of Acts? Two multiple reasons, but two that relate to health. One is that God works supernatural miracles. Two, God used godly physicians like Luke to minister to the needs of people unselfishly. We come now to the third epic. There are some recent studies being done about first, second, third, and fourth generation fourth century Christianity. Some of those studies are really remarkable and they tell about the hidden factors that the church grew so rapidly. One of the books written by the eminent scholar Rodney Stark is called The Rise of Christianity. It talks about the historic marvel to properly interpret what happened in the first, second, and third centuries. Now, one of the chapters in his book is called Survival Rates in the Golden Rule. He talks about two pandemics that came through Europe in, and the Middle East in 160 A.D. and 260 A.D. And he describes that whole villages were being wiped out. Whole towns were dying. And Stark says... He describes the contrast between what was happening in the Christian community of the church and what was happening in the pagan community. He quotes from Dionysus, and Stark goes back to the original sources, and he's quoting from Dionysus in 260 AD, and he's talking about the pandemic, and it's powerful. He says this, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need, ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life supreme, serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains, Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. We lost a number of elders, deacons, and laymen, winning high commendation so that death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith, seems every way equal to martyrdom. And Dionysus goes on to say, that because of this loving care, because of this self-sacrificial giving their lives in the pandemic, that the Christian church gained credibility and thousands became Christians. Now, listen, I continue reading Dionysus. Having noted at length how the Christian community nursed the sick and dying and even spared nothing in preparing the dead for proper burial, the pagans behaved in the very opposite way. Dionysus said, at the very onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away. They fled from their dearest. They threw their 
bodies onto the roads even before they were dead. They treated the unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. You know, it reminds me of Ellen White's statement in uh, Evangelism 153. Nothing will open doors for the proclamation of the truth like evangelistic medical missionary work. In the first, second, and third century, when disease ravaged villages, and the community saw medical professionals, and they saw Christians with self-sacrificing love ministering to the sick, they saw the gospel with flesh on it. They saw a manifestation of the living Christ. And they said, that's worth following. That's worth following. Now, one of the early Christians, Tertullian, wrote this. He said, it is our care of the helpless, our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Only look, they say, how they love one another. The early Christians, Stark says, acting in obedience to Christ, began to care for the poor, the sick, the marginalized. marginalized. So alien were their charitable acts and self-sacrificial lives that the Romans referred to them as the third race. The Romans looked at the Christians who were giving their lives continually in self-sacrificial service. They were not living self-centered, egotistical, arrogant lives separate from their communities, but they were plunging into the need of their community. They cast their lives into the furrow of this world's need. And as they did that, the gospel was the incarnation of Christ again. They saw Jesus again. And as Jesus ministered through them, they were called the third race. This was true throughout the Middle or the Dark Ages. We come now to the fourth period. First period that we've looked at is the very life of Christ, given in self-sacrificial service. The second period is the New Testament Christian church, given in self-sacrificial Christian service. The third period is those early centuries and throughout the Dark Ages. We come now to the forerunners of the Reformation. We come now to the seed of the woman planted there in the wilderness. We come now to northern Italy and southern France. We come now to the Waldenses and the hidden story of the Waldenses. Now, the Waldenses, for example, are spiritual forebearers. They constitute a link between early Christianity and the churches of the Reformation. They, of course, were the seed of the woman. They revealed the love of Christ in the Dark Ages. Now, Ellen White makes an interesting statement about the Waldenses, and it's a very short statement that I hadn't studied very much until recent weeks. But it's this, this statement that helped get my mind working to do the research in the medical missionary work of the Waldenses. And here's what she says. The Waldense pastors not only preached the gospel, but they visited the sick. Now that was kind of surprising to me. So I wondered, what kind of medical training did the Waldenses have? 
And so I began to do some research on it, and one of the first persons that I discovered that did any significant research on medical missionary work among the Waldenses was Professor Alfred Vosher. He was one of the professors at our French seminary in Cologne since the Celeve in France. He's really an authority on the Waldenses. And uh, he goes back and he says this. He's quoting one of the renowned historians who is actually a Waldensian historian. And here's what was written in one of the Waldensian textbooks. Moreover, the greatest part of the Waldensian youth gave themselves to the study of physiology and surgery. And herein they excelled, thereby rendering themselves most able and skillful physicians, both of the soul and the body. They had much experience in medicine and surgery, and in these arts possessed amazing secrets, wonderful in their simplicity. Waldensian young people learned surgery. They learned medicine. They learned simple natural treatments. And so as they were traveling through Europe with their long robes, with their handwritten Bible manuscripts, how did they get those openings to open the Word of God? They found people that were sick. They found people that were dying. And they treated them. Sometimes they did surgery on them. Sometimes they treated them with natural remedies. And that's one of the reasons that the Reformation and the pre-Reformation spread so rapidly is because minds were open and hearts were open through the self-sacrificial ministry of the Waldenses. Now, one Waldense scholar says this, each one of those barbs, and barbs, of course, is another name for pastors, each one of those barbs had also knowledge and practice of ministry, but they also had a practical trade, especially medicine and surgery, for which they were skillful and well-considered and practiced to charitably assist their needy brethren as well as to cover them and help for the expenses of their long and dangerous journeys. The Waldenses ministered to mind, body, emotion, and spirit. Down through the centuries, God has always had men and women that not only have preserved the theological truths of Scripture, but God has always had men and women down through the centuries who've sensed that the self-sacrificing ministry of Christ reached out holistically to, to men and women physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. We come now to the forerunners, the fifth great epic. We come to the forerunners of Adventists, the Methodists. You may or may not be aware that John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, understood this holistic view of human beings. Did you know that John Wesley wrote a medical textbook? The founder of Methodism wrote a medical textbook. It went through 32 editions, and it is one of the best-selling medical textbooks ever written of all time. The title of the medical textbook is The Primary Physique, 32 editions. Very early on, Wesley believed that every one of his pastors, if they're going to be effective in ministry, needed to know something about anatomy and physiology. 
So in the training course for his pastors, he taught them medicine and anatomy and physiology. Wesley was writing in, in the, to Alexander Knox in the 1700s, and he's trying to emphasize to Knox the importance of medical missionary work, and he says, it'll be a double blessing. If you give yourself up to the great physician, that he may heal soul and body together, and unquestionably this is his design, he wants to give you both inward and outward health. Now, Wesley understood the relationship between physical, mental, and spiritual dynamics. Wesley became a vegetarian, and as he did, a number of other evangelical Protestant ministers began to criticize him as being a legalist. Now, he wrote to the Bishop of London in 1747, and these are Wesley's words, Thanks be to God, since the time I gave up the use of flesh meats and wine, I've been delivered from physical ills. Well, the ministers came on him pretty strong, and they said, you're a legalist. So he went back to eating meat, and he got sick again. So his doctor wrote to him, and he said, Wesley, you tell those preachers that this is doctor's orders. You've got to go back to being a vegetarian. And Wesley did, actually. He actually went back to being a vegetarian. John Wesley understood that when God created us, he created us physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally. Wesley understood that a godly physician, a godly dentist, a godly medical practitioner is just as much a minister as the pastor that stands in the desk and preaches the word of God. Wesley understood that people will not necessarily accept your theological teachings unless they understand that you're ministering to them in Christ-like, self-sacrificing love. It was in 1863 that God gave to Ellen White a vision of health. Early Adventist pioneers were dying because of their lack of knowledge of the health message. But the reason why God gave to Seventh-day Adventists the health message was not only to make us healthy, although that was one reason. It was not only to be a positive public relations tool for the world, but one of the prime reasons that God gave to Seventh-day Adventists the health message was a revelation of the glory of God through self-sacrificial service to mankind that Seventh-day Adventists would reach out in care, reach out in love, reach out in compassion. And one day, the glory of God will be revealed. In a world of selfishness, unselfish love will be revealed. In a world of darkness, the light will pierce that darkness. God is going to raise up a generation God is raising up a generation of pastors and medical professionals and lay people who have the prime goal of using the gifts and talents 
and the abilities that they have to minister to others. And when in self-sacrificing love, when in compassionate care, when the gospel is lived out in human flesh, hearts are touched and lives are changed and men and women become open to the gospel. Revelation, the 18th chapter, describes some of the most traumatic times in earth's history. Even a casual reading of Revelation 18 reveals that there will be an economic collapse that this world is going to face very rapidly. Revelation 18 talks about in one hour, in one hour, their riches become to naught. The merchants buy their merchandise no more. Their luxuries that they lusted after are gone. Revelation 18 talks about an economic collapse. It talks about physical, natural disasters. It talks about a society that is thrust into chaos. But it introduces all that in Revelation 18, verse 1. John says, looking in prophetic vision, and after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven and the, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. The glory of God will shine from one end of the earth to the other. And what is God's glory? It's his character. What is this world waiting for? What will attract the multitudes of this world to Christianity and to Christ? It is when the character of Jesus is revealed once again in the lives of his followers, where they are no longer playing church. They are no longer fiddling on the knife edge of eternity. They are no longer waiting in the kiddie waiting pools of faith. They are no longer... Laodicean complacent Adventists, but their hearts are broken over the greatness of Christ's love, the magnificence of his goodness, the majesty of his grace. They have come to the cross, and there at the cross, they have seen one dying for them that would rather be lost himself than have them no longer in heaven. They have come to the cross and they've seen in Christ the one bearing the guilt and shame of sin. They have come to the cross and there at the cross they have seen self-sacrificing love and they leave the cross to serve. They leave the cross to touch. They leave the cross to bless. They leave the cross transformed and changed to reveal the love of God there's one thing more important than sewing a good stitch, although that is important if you're working on me. There's one thing more important than pulling a tooth, although that's important if you want to get my cavity out. I don't mean to downplay scientific expertise. When I go to the physician or dentist, I want the best. But there is something more important, that every person that walks into your office is touched by love. 
that they sense something different about you. You may not pray for everyone, but there is an atmosphere in that office that is as real as air. Because you have given your life in self-sacrificing love to touch somebody for Jesus. Go from this place. Go from this place. To be the eyes of Christ that see human need. To be the feet of Christ that walk to where need is. To be the hands of Christ to touch somebody. To touch somebody with grace. To be the heart of Christ. To love them for him. To be the mind of Christ. The world is waiting with longing desire to see Jesus in you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we look at some of the great revivals down through history, we see that proclamation was united with practice. We see that doctrine was united with duty. We see that loving words were united with loving acts. Send us from this place changed. Father, we are here because we're committed, consecrated, dedicated medical professionals. We are here because we want to manifest your love to a dying world before a waiting world and a watching universe. Send us renewed. Send us refreshed. Send us revitalized. Send us redetermined to share your love in sacrificial ways with others. May we say like Jesus, daughter, son, your faith, your faith has made you whole. As we minister to people physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, may we leave this place anointed by the Spirit of God to be true gospel medical missionaries. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.